page 1028, Revelation chapter 2. And to the angel of the church of Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Bill. Uh, like Bill said, my name is Taylor. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. Um, let me add my welcome to his and the many others that you've heard this morning. Uh, we're so glad that you're here, that you've chosen to be with us this morning. It's always a joy to open and read God's Word, and it's particularly a treat for me this morning uh, to be able to guide us through it. And so could, could we pray together uh, that God would help us understand his Word and make it clear in our lives? Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful for who you are. You are good, you are gracious. One of the ways that we know you're gracious is that you have made yourself known to us in creation, in your word, and ultimately through your son. God, I pray that you would give us ears that are ready to hear what you have to say to us today through your word and hearts that are ready to take that and allow it to change our lives and make us more like your son. And ultimately, that is what we pray is that we would see your son clearly this morning. I pray this in the name of your son Jesus and by his spirit. Amen. Well, when I was in college, I actually participated in one of the greatest upsets of all time. Uh, not people don't know this about me, but I was a key part in one of the greatest upsets of all time. Uh, it was my junior year. Uh, the year was 2015, and I had been dating this girl for about five months. When get this. I convinced her to marry me. Crazy, right? And, and if you know Ashton, some of you have had the privilege of meeting Ashton, uh, my wife, you know that an underdog story like this is on par with the likes of Rudy uh, because she is so incredibly beautiful and thoughtful and kind and caring, and I'm, you know, this, right? You can put two and two together. Um, it, it, was a, it was a massive upset. But even more surprising than the fact that she agreed to marry me uh, is, is the fact that she endured a 14-month engagement before we actually got married. And, and that's a long engagement. If any of you are in the engagement period or thinking about getting married sometime soon, uh, I tell everyone to reverse that, date for 14 months and get, be engaged for five months because a 14-month engagement is really hard. Um, it, but, but that just meant that we got 14 months to really, really, really prepare ourselves for what it meant to be married. And for me, I knew the first thing that that meant was that I needed to get in shape. I needed to get in shape for our wedding day. I, I just had to do it. And I don't know what you guys do when you need to get in shape, but for me, it looks like eating a little bit healthier and going on Amazon and buying the DVD of Insanity. Uh, anyone familiar with the, the Insanity 
franchise, if you want to call it that. Um, if, you, if you're not familiar with Insanity, Insanity is basically this guy, Shanti, you see him up there, he's really ripped, really attractive, and he's just dancing around on the TV, and he's got all of his friends who are also good looking, and they're dancing around on the TV, and they're like, hey, you, in the living room, you can do this too, come dance around with us, and then you'll be fit, and you'll look like me. That's basically what Insanity is. Uh, so I was hooked, I bought it, and for the next few months, I spent my afternoons in my mom's garage spending quality time with Shanti getting ready to get married. It's not, not as weird as it sounds, uh, but that's what I did. <laughs> and, and for some reason, and I don't know why this is, for some reason, I thought that it was actually going to be easy to get back in shape. Um, like, I was an athlete in high school. I think that was part of why, is that I was just like, oh, it might, it'll probably be easy, as, just as easy to get in shape now and lose all the weight I gained in college as it was to stay the weight that I was when I was playing three sports and working out all the time. Uh, but it absolutely was not, and I soon found that it was very difficult. Like, five minutes in, I was, I was dying. And, and I don't know what I expected, right? Like, it's called insanity. That should have been clue one that it wasn't going to be easy. Um, there, there's also this, this moment where Sean T., that attractive guy you just saw, is laying on the ground. He's like, I'm dying. Uh, why do I do this to myself? And if he's doing that, like, someone who looks like me definitely is not going to find this to be easy, right? And the more I did insanity, the more I actually found the opposite was true. That the harder it was, the better it was for me. That actually working out itself is meant to be hard. That's how you know you're doing it right. So the harder I worked, the better the results I saw. The better my form was, the better results I saw. In fact, uh, if, I, if I get through insanity and the super fit guy's laying on the ground dying, and I walk out of there and I'm like, nailed it. Wasn't even hard. I didn't even break a sweat. It probably, doesn't, it probably means I just sat there and watched them do it. I didn't, much less did I do it right. And, and I think that the same dynamic is at play when it comes to our faith. Now hear me out on this. That, that if following Jesus is easy, we're not doing it right. If following Jesus is easy, we're not doing it right. See, see, sometimes I think that I fall under this assumption and I kind of want a faith that is just add a little bit of Jesus to my already comfortable life and then that Jesus will make my life more comfortable and easier, make all my problems go away, make it less difficult. Some of us may have had Christianity presented to us that way, like come be a part of, of this thing where all your pain goes away. But on the ground, that's just not true, is it? It's just not true. And the church in Smyrna that we just heard uh, the letter to them read uh, it understood that this couldn't be further from the vision that Jesus gave to his followers. If you're just joining us, we've been in a series on the first few chapters of Revelation. And in those chapters, chapters 2 and 3, you'll find a series of letters to seven churches. And these letters represent the very real words of Jesus to these very real historical churches that are located in Asia Minor, or what is today Turkey. And, and, and looking at these churches, our goal as Christ Community in 2019 in Kansas City is to say, how can we be a church for the end of the world? What does it look like to faithfully follow Jesus with the end of the world in mind? As we will see when we, when we look deeper at this letter, this church in Smyrna was suffering intense persecution. 
Yet, this is so fascinating. They're one of only two of those seven churches that is considered successful. In fact, if you read all of the letters, only Smyrna, which we're reading about today, and Philadelphia, which we'll get to in a few weeks, are commended as having done nothing wrong. Like, Jesus has no words of correction for them, even though he does for all of the other churches. He basically just pats them on the back and says, it's hard for you. Good job. This morning, we're going to gain two insights from this church in Smyrna about what it looks like to follow Jesus well from a church who does it right. But before we, we dive into the letter, the, the first thing that we should notice with, when, we, when we read through it is that Jesus begins by naming Smyrna's hurt. He starts his words to them by naming their hurt. And again, if you read the other six letters, this is odd because all the other churches that Jesus writes to, including Philadelphia, who is the other successful church, he begins by saying, I know your works. I know the things that you are doing, whether they're good or bad, that's what I know, is is these things that you are doing. But he begins this in a strikingly different way and says not, I know your works, but I know your pain. Essentially, he says, I am aware of the suffering that you are experiencing right now. Jesus offers these Christians a comfort that we all need when we're going through various suffering. And maybe you're here this morning and for whatever reason you are experiencing deep and painful suffering in your life right now. If that's you, will you hear Jesus say to you before we get to the rest of this letter, hear him say to you, I know I know. I'm aware of what you're going through. I know how hard it is, and it is not outside of my sight or my care. He begins by naming their suffering. So what is this that they are going through? Let's actually turn to the text. Look at what Jesus says to them in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not but are a synagogue of Satan. So he names three things here, tribulation, poverty, and slander. And to understand what's actually going on with this church, we need to understand a bit about the city of Smyrna itself. See, Smyrna was a major city in the Roman world and a relatively wealthy city. And and so in addition to other suffering, Jesus named specifically financial, economic hardship that they had been impacted by as a result of following Jesus. Likely, this has to do with the trade guilds that were prevalent in Smyrna, uh, which is essentially like today's unions. Okay, so there were all these trade guilds, and essentially, these trade guilds worshipped patron deities. So what would happen is if you worshipped the patron deities, you got work. And if you don't worship the patron deities, you don't get work. So since Christians didn't worship the patron deities but worshipped the God who revealed himself in Jesus, they didn't get work. They didn't get contracts. We see elsewhere in the book of Hebrews that some Christians in this area suffered from loss of property too. And so there are all of these economic impacts that they had experienced as a result of following Jesus. But on top of that, Jesus also mentions the role of the Jewish community and what they were doing to contribute to the suffering of Smyrna. He even calls these Jews a synagogue of Satan. That's harsh, right? 
We, we have to be clear that he's not making some anti-Semitic statement that all Jews are Satanists. That's not, that's not what he's getting at. But more what he's saying is this. This is likely what was going on, is that, that these Jews that were living in Smyrna were saying that they were Jewish, but their actions were actually in line with the work of the enemy of their God, so they weren't really Jewish actions at all. That's what he's saying, is you say you're Jewish, but you're not really, your, your work is actually doing more of what, what Satan once done. What's probably going on here is something like this. See, Smyrna was also known for its emperor worship. It was actually one of the first cities to erect a temple to Caesar Tiberius. And so as emperor worship grew, the Jewish people in the area ended up getting legal protection so that they could continue to worship Yahweh and just pray for Caesar instead of praying to Caesar. So then as Christianity spread, they got grandfathered into this protection and also were able to worship the God of Jesus um, and not worship Caesar. But here's the thing. Smyrna Jews hated Christians. These Jews hated the Christians. They thought that they were blasphemous. They thought that they were a threat to their livelihood. And so what they did was they actually used their favor with the Roman government to out them as Christians and say, hey, they're not, they're not actually worshiping Caesar. Does anyone know that kid that's just sitting around waiting to tattle on their sibling, like just watching for them to do something wrong and then like, hey, mom, dad, they, that person did this, right? Uh, I'm, we don't have kids, uh, but we have a dog, which is basically the same thing, um, right? Parents, yeah. Uh, and, and so as you guys, you know, a lot of you look at the world and understand the world through kids. We understand the world, world through dogs. That's just how we do it. Uh, and, and my wife's mom, my mother-in-law, has two little Bashan poodles named Chance and Raymond. And I'm not kidding. Chance will sit on the couch and look at the trash can and wait for Raymond to try to get in it and then just start barking furiously. Like, like this dog tattles, right? He tattles. And then obviously later, when no one's looking, he sneaks away to the trash can and gets the food himself. That's, that's how it works. And that's essentially what the Jewish people in Smyrna were doing. They were tattling to the authorities about the Christians, saying, hey, like, they aren't praying to Caesar. They're not worshiping him. You should punish them. And, and, and just they were contributing to the oppression that the Christians in Smyrna were facing. Now, in response to this suffering and oppression, Jesus tells them what we would all want to hear in this circumstance, doesn't he? He says, do not fear. Don't be afraid. That's one of the, the, the most prevalent commands in all of Scripture, and especially in Revelation, too, is do not fear. And a lot of, that, a lot of us would, would expect that to be followed by something like this. Do not be afraid. It's going to get better. Do not be afraid. I'm going to take all your pain away. Do not be afraid. The suffering will go away. But let's look again at verse 10. Jesus says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Some of you are thinking you should have said that before the sermon. Uh, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Surprisingly here, Jesus says, do not fear. It's actually going to get harder. Do not fear. There's actually more suffering to come. 
He's preparing them for even worse things that are knocking at their doorstep. Some of them will be thrown into prison, he says, and others of you, a portion of those thrown into prison, are actually probably going to die for your faith. Now, I guarantee you this is not what they wanted to hear at this point, is it? Right, you've already experienced all this suffering, and just imagine that, that Jesus walks through the back doors of Christ Community Brookside. He grabs coffee and donuts, because don't forget he's human and he needs that. Um, and then he walks up here and, and pushes me aside and says, I know you're hurting, but take heart. Some of you are going to die. That's not what you would want to hear, is it? See, it may seem foreign to us, But hundreds of churches around the world are experiencing exactly what Smyrna experienced. They're being oppressed and persecuted daily for their faith. They know what it's like to suffer for Jesus in ways that we may never know. One of these churches is our partner, uh, the 11th Hour Network, which is a church planning network in northern Kenya in, in the middle of a large Muslim population. And a few months ago, our friend Gitachu, who leads that ministry, shared with us that there had been an attack on five churches in that area and that multiple Christian businesses, cars, had been ransacked and looted. The aftermath left a number of Christians injured and over 70 put in jail. One of those churches was Emmanuel Victory Church, which is one that Bill and I know others in the congregation have visited. This is happening now around the world. But in spite of this intense persecution, Christianity continues to grow in northern Kenya and as an increasing number of people come to know Jesus. In fact, that's why the attacks happened, was people saw so many Muslims coming to know Jesus, they were were like, we need to respond and attack these churches. So, So in the middle of this persecution, there's a great gospel movement going out through northern Kenya and elsewhere in persecuted areas throughout the world. And it's not hard to understand why, is it? When people see someone follow Jesus despite incredible cost, it's hard not to take Jesus seriously. And here's the thing. I think that we especially need this letter because we aren't Smyrna. We need this letter because we are not Smyrna. For the most part, we live in the land of plenty and comfort. We have our hardships and suffering, and hear me, those should not be diminished. But rarely do we face the intense persecution that Smyrna and other churches around the world face on account of our faith. And if that's true, if we need this letter because we aren't Smyrna, then how do we respond to a letter like this? What would we do with this if it's not really intended necessarily for our context? I think that there are two things. And the first is this, that we can pray. That we can pray for the persecuted church. When Gitachi reaches out to us, that's the first thing that he asks for is, please pray. Please pray for these people, these situations, for God's mission in Kenya. We can be devoted to praying for the persecuted church. But the second thing, and I think the thing that's harder for us to do, is that we can learn from the persecuted church. Both past and present, we have something to learn from a church that faces persecution and the potential of death. And here's the first thing we can learn from them. It's that true loyalty to Jesus ensures suffering. 
True loyalty to Jesus ensures suffering. Because even though we're not those churches, following Jesus for us should still be challenging and costly and hard. I mean, this is the picture of faith that Jesus himself gives his disciples, isn't it? The, the same John who recorded what is written in Revelation also uh, was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers and disciples, and he also wrote another book called The Gospel of John uh, that is one of the four biographies we have of Jesus' life, and that's earlier in the New Testament. And there, Jesus lays out plainly what it will look like to follow him. Remember what I told you, he says. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Friends, following Jesus shouldn't be easy because Jesus himself endured intense oppression. And do we really think that if the world hated Jesus that we should for some reason be above that hate ourselves? That we're entitled to some kind of costless Christianity? Jesus says the opposite here, doesn't he? He actually tells us that that we should be more afraid of a faith that costs us nothing than any persecution or suffering the world throw at us. We should be more afraid of a costless faith than any kind of suffering we can endure. And if this is true, then we have to ask ourselves this. What has following Jesus cost us? What has following Jesus cost us? Has it cost us friendships? Has it cost us relationships? Maybe romantic partners to follow Jesus well. Has it cost us opportunities at school or at work? And students, I honestly believe there might not be a harder place to follow Jesus than school right now. Has it cost us opportunities there? Has it cost us our time? Has it cost us our money? Are we giving generously as a response to God's call on our life? Are we spending our money in different ways than those around us because we follow Jesus? Do we look strange and different in how we rest and how we work? Essentially, the question is this. If we lived in Smyrna, could they convict us of being a Christian? If you lived in Smyrna, would they be able to convict you of being a Christian? Friends, hear this, and it's hard, but it's true. If your life looks the same as your unbelieving friends, same values, same standard of life, same whatever, that's not following Jesus. If following Jesus is easy and has cost you nothing, then you're not doing it right. If I can be transparent, sometimes I think that I am eager to say I'm willing to suffer for Jesus. I will gladly say that. But in the same breath, I am doing everything I can to prevent any possible kind of suffering to ever beset me. I might even say I'm willing to die for Jesus, but we live in a culture and we ourselves work tirelessly to to avoid death altogether. Because if we're honest, death is scary, right? It's uncomfortable to think about death. Some of us might fear dying with regret or dying too soon or without accomplishing all that we have set out to do. And friends, those are real fears. But Jesus says that's all the more reason to consider the cost of following him, all the more reason to consider how we are preparing in our lives for a death that awaits us. 
One of the earliest Christian martyrs uh, is Polycarp. And Polycarp was actually a bishop in the city of Smyrna that we're studying. And Polycarp, it was after the time this letter was written, but he spent 86 years in prayer and fasting and study of these four verses, of this letter to Smyrna, so that by the way he lived his life, he would be ready and not waver the day he was put to the test. Because Polycarp lived a life of daily dying to himself, he was ready for the day when loyalty to Jesus actually cost him his life. When he confessed his faith in front of a crowd and the Gentiles and Jews in Smyrna alike burned him alive. Now, some of us might wonder, whew, being burned alive, uh, costly things, death. If that's what it's like to follow Jesus, if that's the life that I'm promised, is Jesus even worth it? And it's a fair question. Let's, let's pick up again at the end of verse 10. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, he must hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Here we find the second lesson that we learn from the persecuted church. If loyalty to Jesus ensures suffering, it is equally true that loyalty to Jesus rewards our suffering with victory. That loyalty to Jesus rewards our suffering with victory. In other words, Jesus wins. That's the whole message of the book of Revelation is Jesus wins and if we're willing to suffer with him, we will win with him. Amen? You'll notice that Jesus offers the faithful in Smyrna a crown. In Rome, crowns were given for accomplishments, for achievements, as a reward for conquering heroes and sports stars. But here it's given to the one who remains faithful in suffering. And he says that that crown itself is life. Life. Be faithful to death, and I will give you life. And did you catch, we didn't read it except for when Bill read it, how Jesus identified himself in verse 8? He says, these are the words of the first and the last who died and now is alive. How can this church or any persecuted church or any of us have the strength to stare death in the face? Because Jesus defeated death. Jesus defeated death. We follow a Savior that overcame by dying and we share in that victory. And this is what Jesus means when he tells the church in Smyrna that they might suffer a first physical death, but they will not be hurt by a second spiritual death, which is language that's a metaphor of God's judgment on evil. And here's the other hard truth that that communicates to us this morning, is that there is a future reality for each and every human being. And the deciding factor is who was ultimately loyal to Jesus. That's it. There is a second death, an eternal punishment, a final separation from God and all things good that awaits everyone apart from Jesus. And this is, this is something that can be uncomfortable to, to wrestle with, right? But it's also unmistakably true. If we ignore the reality of eternal punishment, we lose the value of eternal reward. The person who ultimately rejects Jesus will experience the second death instead of his resurrection life. And I could, could I just pause for a moment and suggest that maybe that's where some of you are right now? 
that maybe you've gotten through this whole sermon and, and you're like, I don't have any cost to give to follow Jesus. I'm not really willing to suffer for Jesus because I wouldn't even claim to know him or to follow him. Maybe you haven't yet experienced the resurrection life that Jesus offers. There is a second death waiting. Will you pass through unharmed? Have you placed your faith in the one who conquered death, the only one who has conquered death? And can I suggest that maybe if that's you, your next step in preparing to die and counting the cost of following Jesus is placing your hope in the one who overcame death by dying. Now, now on the other hand, the one who is faithful to him will not be hurt by the second death, but experiences his resurrection life now and looks forward to a bodily resurrection in the future. And this is good news, isn't it? One of the greatest practices that reflects this reality is the practice of baptism. Baptism is an important step of faith to say publicly, I'm united with Jesus in death and in resurrection. I am placing my hope in a future crown of life and my ultimate loyalty is to Jesus alone no matter what the cost. And maybe that's your next step. Whether you just started following Jesus 20 minutes ago or have been following him for 20 years. Maybe your next step is baptism. Because I would venture to say that some of us in the room right now have avoided being baptized precisely because it feels too costly. What will people think if I do this now? And I'd encourage you to take that risk. To invite your kids to take that risk. We actually have a baptism service coming on November 10th. And if you haven't been baptized, please consider doing that then. And what it will look like is we will celebrate together as a church community committed to the costly, rewarding way of Jesus. This hope, this, this good news, this joy of a future resurrection gives us energy to endure the suffering we face today because we have that to look forward to if we're with Jesus. And it also assures us that Jesus is worth it, doesn't it? He was worth it for one young man who walked into an 11th hour camp in Kenya late one August night. This young man had escaped from his parents' home, was running through the dark and thorny bushes until he collapsed inside their compound. And our friends in Kenya ran to see what was going on. After the excitement died down, one of the evangelists actually recognized the young man as a former student at a local university who had dropped out because of mental illness. The young man's parents had searched for healing among well-known witch doctors and healers and sacrifices, yet all the while his situation worsened. These here are the words of Gatachu about what happened next. He says, We felt the Lord brought him to us at such a time as this for healing, and we agreed to pray for him the whole night. God, very rich in his mercy, set him free from the demonic spirit. For the past two days, this young man has helped set up Jesus' film equipment and joined in morning prayer and fasting and even shared his testimony during fellowship. Yesterday, his parents came to see him in the church. And get this. To their amazement, he told them he did not want to go back home. He wanted to stay in the church with Christian families. Remember, he's a Muslim. Shortly after that, I, Gatachu, not me, led the young man to accept Christ and the Lord restored his health and state of mind. This afternoon, when he wrote the letter, he went out as an outreach team as a translator. 
So in the span of a few days, this young man who was hurt and oppressed by evil is changed by the power of the Holy Spirit and is now going and evangelizing in Kenya. That's amazing, isn't it? And here's the thing. Here's what we've got to get. If that same Jesus who transformed the life of a hurting young man oppressed by the work of evil, who continues to cause explosive growth in the most persecuted areas of the world, if that Jesus lives in you and lives in me, there is no end to the good he can accomplish through his people and for his world. Amen? Governments cannot contain him. Persecution cannot stop him. Death cannot hold him. We can be faithful unto death. We will overcome. Are you ready to suffer with him in order to win with him? Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would take your truth, your word, and implant it in our hearts. I pray that you would do an audit of our lives and help us to see where it has cost us and where it might still need to cost us in order to follow you well. Help us to remain loyal to you and keep ever in front of our eyes the prize, the crown, the life that you have promised us through your resurrection. Thank you for guaranteeing our resurrection with the proof of your resurrection. Would we experience that life even today in Jesus' name, by his spirit, amen.